0: quiet. I'm here exploring in the deepest, darkest part of the jungle, trying not to startle this sleeping tiger that's just over there. I'll be out here all summer long seeking out new adventures in the forest and trying to learn all that I can for science. While I'm out here adventuring, I hope you enjoy listening to this extended road trip edition of Tumble. We've put together a bunch of our favorite episodes about exploring the world in a road trip fun pack for you to listen to while you're doing exploring of your own going from an elite club for world explorers out to the deepest part of the ocean and then back to the deepest of underground caves. We've got lots of great episodes about exploration and all that you can learn from going out on adventures. We hope you enjoy it. Now I just gotta figure out how to get past this... Oh, oh no! You woke it up!
1: Run! Run!
2: I'm Lindsay.
0: And I'm Marshall, and this is Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery.
2: Today we're taking a field trip to the home base of many of America's great explorers from the past hundred plus years, the Explorers Club in New York City.
0: And while we're there, we'll meet a real explorer who's been on expeditions around the world and even into outer space. All right, right. so tell me, what is the Explorers Club?
2: It's a famous club that you might get invited to join if you do some awesome exploring. And before we meet an explorer, I wanted to know, because this is a show about science, if kids thought that you had to be a scientist to be an explorer. So Fiona and Ryan, who are both 10 years old, had this to say.
3: Not all explorers want to do scientific things while they're exploring. Some of them just want to, like, find something or discover something. I think that when you explore, you're really learning. I think that you really don't need to be a scientist to be an explorer.
0: So I agree. I mean, scientists are not. Explorers learn a lot. So, but why did you want to know?
2: Well, we featured a lot of exciting stories about discovery and exploration on this podcast, and we know that being a scientist gives you the tools and skills to explore everything you can think of. So I got this chance to visit the home of a club that has contributed a lot to science, but you don't have to be a scientist to join.
0: You have to be an explorer to join, right?
2: Yeah, but here's the catch. Your expeditions have to contribute to science, It's sort of like being a citizen scientist, but the very most extreme version of
0: that. Uh, What do you mean by citizen scientist? I think you should explain that.
2: Yeah, I will. It's someone who volunteers to contribute to scientific research, but is not trained as a scientist. It's just curious people like you and me. And the explorer we're about to meet has been one his entire life.
4: I'm Richard Garriott de Caillou is actually my full last name, and you can say I'm a, a private astronaut and video game developer.
2: He's also a board member of the Explorers Club.
4: He sounds pretty awesome, like a private astronaut. In here, that's actually a, the hatch to a Soyuz spacecraft, uh, the vehicle that I used to fly myself uh, to the International Space Station in 2008.
2: Richard actually has an office in the Explorers Club, but whenever he gets the chance, he's outside exploring. And with exploring, it's like you can still find a lot of places and things where there's a lot left to know. Richard told me that he's recently gotten really into what's called extremophile life forms, these tiny little organisms that can live in extremely hot or otherwise totally unfriendly environments.
0: Like junior high cafeterias.
4: (laughs) So, for example, just this last Christmas, I took a family expedition down to El Salvador and Honduras. And when I arrived in the country, I realized that there were a lot of volcanic vent sites. I called some of my research partners back in the United States saying, Hey, has anyone ever sampled this region of the world for extremophile life forms? And the answer was no. And so I immediately changed our, the itinerary of our trip, collected uh, water samples at a variety of these sites sent those back to, in this case, the University of Huntsville in Alabama, and that's what they're doing right now.
2: And so you're saying that any family can have their own exploration?
4: Yeah, well, in fact, that goes back to something that I learned as a a youngster, from, uh, really from my family. I grew up in the Boy Scouts, and the Boy Scouts have this uh, motto, when you go out camping in the woods, leave nothing but footprints, and take nothing but pictures. Well, my family always had one more little piece we'd add in, which is that If that's someplace unique and special, don't forget to bring back scientific samples.
2: Your father was a scientist, right?
4: That's right, he was an astronaut to be specific. In fact, I'm now the first, second-generation American astronaut, and I flew with the first, second-generation Russian cosmonaut.
0: Wow, it must be pretty intense going camping with an astronaut for a dad. You have to spend time in like the camping simulator and maybe it would spin you around really fast. I don't know why, but probably.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that you can understand how Richard got into it. He didn't become a scientist. His video game company was so successful when he was young, but that hasn't prevented him from doing science.
4: A good explorer, just like a good scientist, is a lifelong learner and has a passion for lifelong learning. But I am a college dropout myself. Yet, I would argue, uh, you know, that I'm an extremely well-educated individual, but it comes from being devoted to lifelong learning.
2: Standing in the Explorers Club, you get the feeling that every explorer who traveled to the ends of the earth was up for learning something new. So, we're standing in a parlor room right now. And exactly. where, what do people do in this room? Well,
4: so this is the sort of the members' room. You know, we're, we're just inside the front door. Pretty much all of the really serious expeditions that I've been a part of, those expeditions were kicked off here. If not in this room, somewhere within these halls. It's so
2: special to visit the Explorers Club because it's filled with things from the club's amazing history. You can see tours on YouTube, and we'll post those on our website. I saw photographs, journals, and flags that have been carried to some amazing
4: places. Explorers Club members have taken Explorers Club flags on virtually every first that has occurred. First of the top of Mount Everest, first to either of the poles, first to the deepest parts of the sea, down the Marianas Trench.
2: Richard had some incredible objects that witnessed history being made with famous explorers like Ernest Shackleton and Captain Robert Falcon Scott.
4: A few years prior to the pole being won, they had come to within three degrees of the pole. There's a tiny piece of the wooden sled that was used to get to three degrees from the pole before they turned back that used to belong to Ernest Shackleton. Wow! So wait, he had a piece of sled just like sitting in his hand?
2: No, it was actually framed, and it's the most (laughs) impressive sliver of wood that I've ever seen in my entire life.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I've seen some impressive slivers. (music) So where has Richard explored?
2: Well, he's been all over the world, including Antarctica twice, looking for meteorites. But he says exploring extreme places is a different game than it used to be a hundred years ago.
4: It's not the quite same level of unknown. I never felt that my life was at risk. I mean, it might be a little more dangerous than, you know, walking on the sidewalk, but uh, a lot more safe than these early explorers. You know, and, and these guys were really facing, you know, just incredible levels of physical hardship.
2: That hardship and risk is made for some incredible stories that I've loved my entire life. So you can read about the race to the poles or the first summit of Mount Everest or even landing on the moon. Those were all Explorers Club members. So we're in sort of a, a place of history that goes all over the world.
4: Yeah, that is exactly right. Uh, and into outer space, of course. and in that, well, exactly <laughs> around the world and beyond. Um, you know, and one of the one of the things I find most interesting about uh, exploration, as you get to understand it, there's also exploration that is happening underneath everyone's noses all the time
0: like, in their mouths.
2: (laughs) I think what he means is that we can all be citizen scientists, because there's a lot of ways to contribute to science just by observing interesting things near where we live. And we can go to the gutter right outside our house right now, or when you're feeling better, to find something out of this world.
4: Finding meteorites is something that most people think is a very unlikely and very rare, but in fact, almost everyone who's listening to us today can go find one right now. Grab a magnet, go outside your home, find a place where the water is funneled off the roof of your home or building, hopefully find a place on the ground where that water spills out, and your roof will have been collecting grain-of-rice-sized meteorites and depositing them on the ground wherever the water runs off for years. And so all you do is take out a magnet, rub it in the dirt, you know, right around where the water, you know, hits the ground. But if you take that and put it under a microscope, there's pretty darn good odds that you will find a handful of very small meteorites that you'll be able to recognize by their being iron and having this magnetic property to be picked up by the magnet well that's so awesome so like space stuff in your gutter
2: yeah space stuff ends up in your gutter and along with maybe some other magnetic stuff you'll recognize a micrometeorite because it would look either perfectly round or pitted like it's hit up against a bunch of different stuff if you have a strong enough microscope you could see a fusion crust from the rock heating up as it falls through space and then quickly cooling
0: so did you go meteorite hunting with richard Garriott?
2: unfortunately i did not because he had to move a piece of his spacecraft with an uber that was coming in three minutes
0: (laughs) so the uber spacecraft app yeah
2: that's like an uber extra 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 large yeah but i saved that from the explorers club so we can do it together at home
0: i'll go get my magnet All right, well, that's our show for today.
2: Thanks to Richard Garriott de Caillou, Kevin Murphy, and Lisa Kovitz for setting us up at the Explorers Club, as well as Jeff Silverman for providing his expertise.
0: Also thanks to our kid contributors, Fiona Michael and Ryan Offerman.
2: And their parents for recording them.
0: Sarah Lentz is our associate producer. Ashley Cox is our social media and newsletter maven.
2: I'm Lindy, and I wrote and produced the show...
0: I'm Marshall and I made the music.
2: And made the cheesy jokes.
0: <laughs> Join us next time for more stories of science discovery.
2: Hi, I'm Lindsay.
0: And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery.
2: This week's show is about going to the deepest place in the ocean.
0: And what it took to get there.
2: Our question comes from a school in Michigan that listens to Tumble.
0: We always love it when teachers play our podcasts in class.
2: It was totally the highlight of my week when I got to Skype with Ms. Bullock's fourth grade class at George Long Elementary in Grass Lake, Michigan.
5: Hi, hey guys!
2: All our question comes from Nailey, who's in the first grade.
6: Hi.
5: Is the deepest part of the ocean.
2: Have we been there in person? So, I asked Neely how she thought someone would get to the deepest part of the ocean.
6: They would have to take a submarine to get
2: down there, probably. Is that what you would do if you were trying to go find the deepest part of the ocean? Uh Uh-huh. Well, what if submarines weren't invented
7: yet? How would you get down there? Um, swim. You think about flying in an airplane, cruising altitude in an airplane is 36,000 feet, and this is deeper than that.
0: So, like I've been in an airplane a few times, and every time you go up there, it just seems like crazy high, and you're saying that this is deeper than that? That is mind-blowing. Who is saying this craziness?
7: (laughs) This is Galen
2: Rosenwax, who's an awesome explorer.
7: I'm a marine scientist, explorer, and filmmaker.
2: And she's going to tell us what it takes to get to the deepest part of the ocean.
7: Galen told me she was Naily's age when she started wanting to be an explorer. And then whenever I had the opportunity to do any sort of projects, even when I was like in kindergarten and first grade, it would always be about the ocean and it would always be about exploration.
2: One of those projects inspired her for the rest of her life.
7: I wrote a report With my brother's help, actually, we did it together um, about Don Walsh and Jacques Picard's expedition to the deepest place in the ocean, the Challenger Deep of the Mariana Trench.
2: Their story was almost unbelievable to Galen when she was seven.
7: This crazy, amazing expedition that these two guys, Don Walsh and Jacques Picard, went down, you know, so deep in the water. It was over 36,000 feet deep.
0: So since like a a meter is like a little bit more than three feet, that's like 11,000 meters.
7: You know, that's like a mile higher than Mount Everest is tall. I mean, that's just crazy. The idea that this had been accomplished opened the world and the oceans to Galen. These two guys went to the bottom of the ocean. Why can't I?
0: So, hold on, Uh, where is the deepest part of the ocean after all? Like, do we even know where it is?
7: Sure, yeah. So the deepest part of the ocean is the Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench. The
2: Mariana Trench is where one of Earth's tectonic plates is moving underneath another, creating a deep undersea valley. The deepest part of the trench is named Challenger Deep.
7: I love the name Challenger Deep because it feels, you know, like it's such a huge challenge to get there, but also to map it and to find it.
2: It's far off the east coast of the Philippines in the western Pacific Ocean.
0: Okay, so tell me about this expedition. Who were these guys, and how did they do it? Did they just, like, get into a little snow globe and drop down?
7: (laughs) (laughs) Close. That's really close. He was the son of the man who actually built the Trieste.
2: Jacques Piccard was a Swiss engineer. He was the son of the inventor of the Trieste a submersible that could make the journey down to the deepest place in the ocean.
7: And then Don Walsh was a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy, and he was also an oceanographer. And he was the lucky guy in the Navy who went on this naval expedition and was the first Navy submersible captain.
2: So on January twenty third, 1960, they planned to make the dive down with the Trieste, which they'd been practicing with at lesser depths.
0: Okay, well, so what's the Trieste look like?
2: Well, it's a regular submarine shape, but it's got a little ball hanging off the
0: bottom. And <laughs> what's going on with a little ball?
2: That's where the explorers sit. It's about seven feet long
0: and... Wait, wait, seven feet long and there are two people in there?
2: Yeah, it was cramped.
0: <laughs> no kidding.
2: The whole thing weighed about eight metric tons or 18,000 pounds.
7: That's like three full-grown elephants. It was very heavy because of the amount of steel it needed to withstand the pressure.
0: So, like, what kind of pressure are you talking about? Were they, like, really stressed?
7: No, she's talking about pressure, the weight of
2: 36,000 feet of water on top of you.
7: If you're swimming in a swimming pool and you dive down to the bottom of the deep end, your ears start feeling pressure. That's on a much smaller scale because you're getting sort of compressed by the weight of the water.
0: So at the bottom of the ocean, there's just a huge amount of pressure.
7: Right, right. And if the steel
2: bubbles surrounding the explorers didn't hold up, they would just get squished.
0: Which is probably not how they wanted their expedition to end.
2: No, they wanted to come up to the top. So they were about to make a really dangerous trip that had never been done before. And that day in 1960, the sea was rough and they noticed that some of their instruments had been damaged on the way out to the middle of the ocean. Oh dear. Yeah, but they
7: decided that it was still safe enough to go on anyway.
0: It was only a little bit broken.
7: I think it took them around five hours to descend to the bottom. The submersible
2: moved very slowly at first, and they were worried that they wouldn't make the dive in time to get up before nightfall. What surprised them is when they hit a colder layer of water, they completely stopped moving.
0: Uh, why, Why did that happen? Why'd they stop?
2: So... The colder water was more dense than the Trieste, even though it was made of heavy steel.
0: Oh, so it was stuck between water layers?
2: Yeah. So how the Trieste worked was that it carried containers full of iron and these bladders full of gasoline. So gas moves you up, iron pulls you down.
7: Anybody who goes in a swimming pool, if you want to get to the bottom, we kind of float. But if you're holding something heavy, you're going to sink.
0: Okay, so they were basically sinking
7: themselves? It was like a controlled sink with the iron. And then it would drop that at the bottom and then raise to the surface.
2: So to keep sinking, when they had stopped, they had to get rid of some of their extra gasoline from the bladders.
0: Okay, so they'd release the gas and it would get heavier to pass the cold water layers.
2: Yeah, so after they passed those early difficulties, they started moving faster. And they were dropping down through the pitch dark, seeing nothing but some very rare streaks of glowing plankton. They were deeper than anyone had ever been before. Everything was going as planned, until...
0: Until they met the sea monster that lives at the bottom of the ocean and eats everybody who goes there?
2: No. They heard a cracking sound. Oh no! One of their windows
7: had cracked. And so I think that was sort of probably a moment of fear and sort of deciding what to do.
0: No kidding. Yeah,
7: but
2: they couldn't even figure out that it was actually their window. All of their instruments and readings looked fine, so they decided to keep going. Oh,
0: sure. (laughs) Like, you only get a little bit squished if it fails.
2: (laughs) I asked Galen if she'd be nervous if she were in their shoes. It would
7: definitely be a little jittery. You're on your way down and there's nothing else you can do but use all your training and be there
2: so at this point everything still seems okay with the submersible they start feeling like they should be getting close to the bottom and landing any minute now but they keep going and going they're just plunging through the darkness
0: and then they're like are we there yet <laughs> yeah.
2: and then they were there when the tria sat down at challenger deep They were the first people at one of the very last extremes left to be explored on Earth.
0: It's probably like being in space, but without stars or sun or planets, and the fish look really weird.
2: Well, they didn't know if they were going to see fish. Nobody thought that anything could survive at the bottom of the ocean.
0: Right, because of the extreme pressure, there's no light, so there's probably no food. And, you know, honestly, with thousands and thousands of pounds of water on your head... Probably not like a good atmosphere for a restaurant.
2: Yeah, all they had was a light out their window and what they could see was just what happened to be in front of it. So they had a big stroke of luck when something swam right past them.
7: They saw some sort of flat fish, which proved that there was some kind of animal life down there, which was really exciting. They were only on the bottom
2: for 20 minutes, but in that time, they had just made a huge discovery that changed our understanding of the ocean.
7: And then I think it took just under four hours for them to get back to the surface. Since
2: Don Walsh and Jacques Picard left Challenger Deep that day, only one other person, the filmmaker James Cameron, has made it to the deepest depths of the ocean.
0: Is that the guy who did Avatar?
2: And Titanic, yes. <laughs> he made a documentary about it called Deep Sea Challenger. And there's also been a few unmanned or robotic research missions to Challenger Deep. And they've helped us learn a lot about the environment of the deep sea that was a mystery to us for so long.
0: So if you want to be an explorer, like, how do you get started? Is there a kit you can order online?
2: Well,
7: it's actually really easy to get started exploring.
0: You just buy a deep-sea diving robot?
7: (laughs) I think the beauty of exploration is that it can be something on this huge scale, like going to the deepest part of the ocean, or it can just be in your backyard, you know, going and finding something new, climbing that tree that you then see a little bird's nest. As long as you're learning something yourself, then it's exploring. What's your advice for kids who want to be explorers? Look around and be observant, because that's really what it is. Being an explorer is noticing things that other people wouldn't notice and looking at the world with a certain curiosity that other people don't have.
0: So while you're out and about, you should tell us, like if you notice anything that you think is unusual or even just things that are usually there that you don't always notice, uh, send them to us.
2: Yeah, we want to hear what you're seeing and what you're noticing and what you're curious about.
3: Sometimes people, they look, they don't see. They hear without listening.
0: They miss the beat. I don't want to be the one to miss out, the
3: one who's not looking at the world around, at the world around.
0: So right now we're listening to a song called Explorer of the World by Frances England.
2: Thanks to Neely and Mrs. Bullock and her fourth grade class at George Long Elementary. It was so much fun to Skype with you. If you're a teacher who uses Tumble in your classroom, we definitely want to hear from you. Get in touch with us at tumblepodcast at gmail.com.
0: Big thanks to the Explorers Club and Galen Rosenwax of Global Ocean Exploration.
2: Sarah Lentz is our associate producer.
0: And I'm Marshall Escamilla. I host and make the music.
2: And I'm Lindsay Patterson. I host and produce this show.
0: And join us next time for more stories of science discovery.
6: Hi, I'm Lindsay.
0: And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery.
2: Today, we're climbing deep into a cave to meet three underground astronauts.
0: Underground astronauts, like they're in hiding or something?
2: <laughs> no, they're archaeologists on an expedition to find fossils from one of our ancient relatives. But like astronauts in space, they have some pretty special talents and a love of adventure.
1: There we
6: go. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. Oh, great. Uh, hi,
1: I'm Marina and Becca. <laughs> my name's Becca, and we have Kenny here <laughs> as well. Yeah.
2: I'm sitting at my desk talking over Skype to Marina Elliott, Becca Pichotto, and Kenny Molipanye. They're part of a team of archaeologists working in South Africa. But it's kind of an unusual interview setup. They're in a cave 30 meters underground.
0: Whoa, that's like 100 feet.
1: Sorry, Lindsay, give us a second while we try to con- get ourselves into a place in the cave that's actually reasonably comfortable and you can see us. <laughs> All right. The challenges of, you know, doing interviews from underground.
0: So um, how do you get Skype in a cave? Is there just like a desktop in there when they got in?
6: It's a, a, a lot of um, wiring and then Wi-Fi.
0: Becca, Marina, and Kenny squeezed together to fit
2: into the screen. They were wearing hard hats with headlamps and pants with reflective tape. They were sitting in what's called the D Naledi Chamber of the Rising Star Cave System, about 50 miles from Johannesburg. It's the site of a major discovery in the history of humankind, Homo Naledi. Here's Becca.
6: Homo Naledi is a... Early hominid, we don't know if it's an ancestor or probably more like a cousin. And it's about 250,000 years old. So far, it's only been found in this one cave system in South Africa.
2: Hominid is the name of the group of species that includes modern humans and our extinct relatives, like Neanderthals. The caves in this part of South Africa have been a hotbed of hominid discovery for the past hundred years, Homo Naledi was one of the biggest finds ever. They found not just one specimen or one body,
0: but fifteen. So how did they find this? Was there like a treasure map and a pirate going like, if you look here, you'll find my buried treasure of a bunch of monkey bones?
2: (laughs) Well, it didn't happen quite like that. Back in 2013, Two cavers were exploring the cave system when they found a tiny gap in the cave wall. They squeezed through it into an open chamber, and with the light from their headlamps, they saw bones literally scattered across the surface of the floor.
0: Wow, but if people had been exploring caves in the area for a hundred years, how did they miss these fossils just laying out in the open?
2: Well, to say it's hard to get to the Dinaletti chamber would be a total understatement. I'll let Kenny describe how she, Becca, and Marina get there every day.
3: Our first obstacle is the Superman's crawl. Uh, we would get down on our bellies and just wiggle our way through this tunnel.
0: Oh boy. <laughs> that's That sounds like... Ugh, really, I couldn't do that.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's lots of small spaces. Superman's crawl is less than 10 inches high. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And that's just the beginning. Next comes a climb up a jagged rock wall.
3: And then you climb up Dragon's Back, jump over Leap of Faith, which is a meter um, distance leap from one point to the next point.
0: (laughs) Dragon's Back, Leap of Faith. My goodness. (laughs) This just sounds like one of the most super intense things a person can do.
3: And then we enter into what I call the crystal chandelier chamber, (laughs) where you, like, unclip your harness and sort of brace yourself for facing the chute.
2: This is the gut-clenching part, the chute. It's what kept Letty chamber a secret for hundreds of thousands of years. It's literally a
3: crack in the wall. And the chute has an 18-centimeter pinch point, which is where you hold your breath, say a little prayer, and squeeze through. And then, yeah, then you make it into the chamber, the fossil chamber.
0: Hold on. Did she say 18 centimeters?
3: Yes. That's seven inches.
0: That's like the size of two and a half Hot Wheels cars laid end to end. I love that that's your unit of measurement. Isn't that everybody's unit of measurement? (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. So your entire body has to fit through the space of two and a half Hot Wheels cars.
0: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's... I can't do that. <laughs> what I really can't imagine, actually, is how someone thought to find this cave. <laughs> it's one of
2: those happy accident kind of things. If the cavers hadn't been tiny people, too, they would never would have found it. But getting there isn't the only challenge. Becca described the other creatures that they encountered on their way to work that morning.
6: There were six or seven bats that we sort of woke up, I suppose, and they were... Trying very hard to figure out which way they should go to get out of our way. Ah,
0: Not only have I been woken up early, but now I have to sit in traffic too. (laughs) What a miserable way
2: to start a bat night. (laughs) Anyhow, once the excavators get down there, they work up to eight hours.
0: So, okay, like main question do they get bathroom breaks?
6: You know, if you decide while you're underground that you need to use the restroom, you have to wait till you get above ground to do that. So you have to plan ahead a little, uh, anticipate your needs so that you can get out through that 18 centimeter gap and through the Superman crawl and everything else.
0: Okay, so like crawling through tiny cracks in the wall to look at ancient bones is like pretty unusual job. So how do you get it?
2: Well, you answer a Facebook ad to be an underground astronaut. Here's how Kenny described finding the gig.
3: I I was procrastinating, um, just trolling around Facebook and Instagram, and here was this ad, and I was like, I'm going to take it.
0: So, like, what did the ad say?
2: Well, first of all, you need to be small enough to fit through that 18 centimeter hole in a wall.
0: (laughs) First thing was, can you fit through a small hole?
2: (laughs) So you don't just need the body, you need the brains too. The expedition needed people with skills in excavating fossils and studying them. Here's Marina.
1: Um, You needed to be able to work well in a small team, not be claustrophobic, not be scared of heights, be willing to you know fly to South Africa for a month without pay and work underground in a potentially dangerous (laughs) environment.
0: I mean who wouldn't sign up to work in a dangerous environment for no pay? You'd have to be crazy not to do it.
1: Yeah I just read adventure
3: and I was like yep we're sold. (laughs)
0: So if you love adventure and don't mind small enclosed spaces, like really, really small enclosed spaces, being an underground astronaut would be like a dream job. Yeah, you
2: get the chance to be part of a huge discovery in early human history. On the original expedition in 2013, Marina and Becca helped collect the first bones of Homo naledi that had ever been studied.
1: We excavated just one unit, which was basically 80 centimeters by 80 centimeters by 20 centimeters deep. We took some material off the surface, but all told, we ended up with about 1,500 fossil fragments.
0: Wow, that's incredible, like having a 1,500-piece puzzle with no photo on the box.
1: Yeah, and it was a species that no
2: one had ever seen before.
0: So definitely no photo on the box.
2: (laughs) Scientists carefully constructed 15 skeletons from the 1,500 fossil pieces. Then they were able to imagine what Homo naledi would have looked like while they were alive. Becca kind of painted a picture for me.
6: If you were to see a Homo naledi on the street, you would not think that it looks a lot like us
2: but it still has a lot in common with humans.
6: It walked on two feet. Its feet, in fact, look an awful lot like ours.
2: It was really short. Even the adults were under five feet tall.
6: On the reconstructions, the head of Homo naledi looks kind of small for its body.
2: Its brain was less than half the size of ours. Its forehead had a steep slope, kind of like an ape.
6: Um, And then it has shoulders that are um, a lot like a gibbon.
2: It also had long, curved fingers like a modern-day monkey.
6: That suggests to us that maybe Homo naledi was still doing lots of climbing in some way.
2: But the bones in its thumbs and wrists suggest that they could have used tools, which is like a really advanced skill for most species.
0: So what does this discovery tell us about humans? Here's what Marina said.
1: You know, the human family tree is a lot bushier than, than people sometimes make it out to be. It's not just a straight
2: line from one ancient hominid species down to us.
1: At the three hundred and fifty to 250,000 year point, certainly in Africa, you know, anatomically modern humans were already on the landscape.
0: So like we might have... Had some Homo naledis over for a party.
1: (laughs) Or we could have been fighting with them.
0: I mean, maybe both. (laughs) God, we're not inviting the naledis over again. (laughs) They always smash the table and steal all the fruit.
2: They're not even that good at using spoons. (laughs) Anyhow, scientists are starting to piece together what it would have looked like to have several hominid species on Earth at one time. The fact that we discovered Homo naledi so recently proves that there's still so much out there to find.
6: It's pretty exciting to find a bunch of bones that belong to a creature that hadn't been described before in science and that, you know, nobody would ever seen before.
0: So if they were able to construct Homo naledi from that first expedition, why do they keep coming back to the cave?
2: That's a really good question, and here's Marina's answer.
1: I think it's really important not just to, you know, bring these initial fossils up and go, OK, we know all about Homo naledi, because we really don't.
2: In other words, they want to know what more there is to discover. And there are definitely more fossils left.
1: We've already hit quite a lot of bone.
0: So what are they hoping to find out?
1: I mean, one of the, I think, the, the big questions is why and how were they getting into this deep area of the cave?
2: The big mystery is how Homo naledi ended up in a place that's nearly impossible to access.
0: Maybe there was an easier entrance to the cave that, you know, closed up sometime in the last 250,000 years.
2: That's definitely a possibility that they're exploring. But how did so many bones end up there? There's no evidence that Homo naledi actually lived in the cave. No plants, no other bones of other animals, no nothing. Here's the best idea scientists have. The Dinaledi chamber was actually a burial ground.
1: We're still working on the hypothesis that Homo naledi was deliberately bringing its dead into this very difficult-to-access space. Um, You know, we've been at it for five years now, and we haven't found a better explanation.
2: Many scientists don't believe that such a small-brained species could have had funerals. That's part of the reason why Marina, Becca, Kenny, and others keep looking for more fossils that might give us more clues to the mystery.
1: You don't sort of find the answer and that's the end of it and you can kind of wash your hands and go home. Every time we come out, we find something new and every time we find something new, we revise our, you know, ideas based on the new evidence.
0: So the whole funeral idea could be buried by the new fossils they find.
2: Yeah, (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pun. Yeah. And that would be scientific progress, to have a completely new idea in maybe just a few years.
0: Okay, so how does one, not me, but someone, become an underground (laughs) astronaut? Just spend, like, a lot of time procrastinating on social media. That's one aspect.
2: The other part is to actually get out there and do stuff. All three women told me that they couldn't have predicted that they'll be sitting in a cave, digging up precious fossils, and doing podcast interviews. But they all had adventurous experiences that somehow led them there. Marina had this advice.
1: Try everything and anything. Try things you think you'll like. Try things you think you might not like. Do it safely, but be curious and get out there.
2: Kenny, do you have anything you want to add?
1: Adventure! (laughs)
2: Thanks to all the awesome women I spoke to in the Dinaledi Chamber. Dr. Marina Elliott, researcher at the University of the Witwatersrand run in South Africa, and lead excavator of the Rising Star Expedition. She's also in charge of the field crew. Dr. Becca Pichotto is the director of the Center for Exploration of the Human Journey at the Perot Museum in Dallas, Texas. In the cave, she's an excavator. Canelo Molapiane is getting her PhD at the University of run and was a trainee on the Rising Star Expedition. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote and produced this episode.
0: I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I make all of the wonderful music you're hearing. Join us next time for more stories of science discovery. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery.
2: Today, we journey inside the Earth, or as far as we can manage to get into it.
0: We'll find out what happens when scientists get together to make a really, really deep hole.
2: That's right. We're sharing the real-life quest to drill deep into our planet and uncover the secrets of the Earth beneath our feet. Two listeners, Brody and Liam, sent us questions about exploring inside the Earth. Here's Brody.
3: My question is, how
7: long does it take to get to the center of the Earth?
2: And here's Liam.
7: How far into the Earth's core do you have to dig for lava?
0: Those kids really want to do some digging.
2: Yeah, their questions made me think of the book, The Journey to the Center of the Earth.
0: Oh yeah, we watched that movie a few weeks ago.
2: I thought it was funny because the way into the Earth was a cave in Iceland, and the scientists just walked right in.
0: Yeah, it was surprisingly easy.
2: Unfortunately, there is no natural hole through our planet. That we know of. (laughs) It's also extremely unlikely. (laughs) So Brody had a different idea of how humans could get there.
3: Scientists would make a robot that can drill into the Earth. It has a time and it can
7: withstand any heat, and has a disk with all the data on it.
0: Well, drilling with a robot seems more realistic than just hiking down through a wide open hole like they did in the movie. Just on a surface level.
2: When you need to separate science from science fiction, it's time to ask a scientist. Do you think that it would ever be possible for a robot to get
8: to the center of the Earth? In the grand scheme of things, yeah um why not we've done crazier um i will definitely say that we haven't even been able to drill through our own crust though and that's pretty intense like we haven't even gotten through our crust which is as thin as an eggshell on an egg
2: that's tashana taylor who teaches geology at the university of miami
0: i drill through all kinds of crust pizza pie bread you name it
2: she's not talking about Crust the food. She's talking about the layers of the earth.
0: Oh, okay, the earth's crust. That's what we live on. The mountains, even the seafloor, it's all crust.
2: Right. And lava, the molten rock that Liam wants to know where to find, is a reminder that there's much more beneath what we can see.
0: Okay, but if we've never been inside the earth, how do scientists know what the layers are beneath the earth's crust?
2: How did scientists discover what's inside of the Earth?
8: So what's interesting is we haven't actually been there. The way that we know about the layers of the Earth, where the boundaries are, and what they're most probably made of, is actually all using seismographs. Seismographs are instruments
2: used to measure earthquakes, but they also give geologists a peek inside
8: the Earth. What geologists do is they actually use seismic waves, which is the waves from earthquakes.
0: So these are waves of energy, not like ocean waves, right?
8: Exactly. And the waves coming off those earthquakes travel through Earth and its layers, and we can see where the boundaries are. Just like an ultrasound machine uses
2: sound waves to create an image of a baby inside a belly, Scientists use seismic waves to create a picture and measurements of what's inside our planet.
0: That's really cool. But don't scientists want to actually see what's in our planet?
2: They do. And that's where the really, really deep hole comes in.
8: The very first idea of We Can Drill Through the Crust was in the 1950s um, to early 1960s. It was called Project Mohole.
0: Mohole, like I want mohole. M-O-H-O-L-E,
8: which is kind of a play on words because the layer between the crust and the mantle is called the Moho discontinuity.
2: The moho is named for Andrija Mohorovic, a Croatian scientist. He discovered that seismic waves moved faster underneath a certain depth in the earth. That was the
8: border between the crust and the mantle, which is the layer underneath the crust. They were saying moho, like a hole to get to the moho. (laughs) It sounds silly, and it kind of
2: was. The idea came out of a group called the American Miscellaneous Society.
0: (laughs) Miscellaneous, like it's a society for whatever.
2: (laughs) Basically, they defined themselves as mildly loony. They didn't take themselves entirely seriously, but they were looking for a big, ambitious scientific project to support. One time they got together for breakfast, someone proposed the idea of drilling to the moho. And Project Moho
8: was born. They were like, oh, let's get down to the moho.
0: Let's get down to the moho. A boogie 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 boogie. Let's get down to the moho. So what what's the move for getting down to the moho? <laughs> do you put your hand like up and then maybe a clap over your head?
2: <laughs> and then you drill down. Yeah, hey, you
0: drill down. Get low.
6: <laughs>
2: you need a big drill and a big ship to do this dance. <laughs> <laughs>
8: Continental crust is, you know, almost 10 times, more than 10 times thicker than oceanic crust. So you want to drill through oceanic crust because it's so much thinner, but then you have to deal with the water.
2: To get to the mantle through land, you have to drill maybe 20 miles or more down. In the ocean, it's much less, but that means Scientists would have to go down through two miles of water before they were even started.
0: But it sounds hard.
2: It was. They had to develop brand new deep sea drilling technology in order to do it.
8: It's the same technology that we use for platform drilling with oil. Drilling on a platform that's standing in the ocean. That was Project Moho that did it in the 1960s.
2: They found a spot in the Pacific Ocean off the west coast of Mexico, and they began to drill.
8: What's funny is they drilled about a tenth of a mile beneath the crust and deemed it a success. Uh,
0: That doesn't seem very far.
2: It is nowhere close to the Moho. And soon after they made their first Mohoes, the whole project got canceled. (laughs) It
8: didn't get further explored because JFK actually took away the funding to do the moon exploration.
0: Wait, so America basically chose to go up instead of down. Exactly. So was Project Mohole actually a failure? It didn't reach the moho.
8: Well, it wasn't totally a failure. One of the great things that I love about science in terms of exploration is a lot of times you feel that exploration is useless other than can you do it? But then it turns out the amount of technologies you have to develop to get something done um, winds up benefiting everyone. It helped all
2: kinds of other scientific drilling explorations, and it kept the dream
8: alive because just recently, scientists tried again. In 2015, there was a resurgence where they wanted to kind of bring back Project Moho, like let's get to the Moho discontinuity, let's get beneath that crust.
2: A geologist named Henry Dick from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution had been inspired by Project Moho, and he'd spent much of his life trying to figure out a better way to do
8: it. They went off the Atlantis Bank, which is sort of off the coast of Madagascar.
0: The Atlantis Bank, is it like a bank that fell underwater in the 2008 collapse?
2: (laughs) No, it's an island that sunk 11 million years ago because it was lifted up and then pulled down with the movement of the crust's tectonic plates. It's now something like a shortcut to the lower layers of crust.
0: So it should be easier to reach the mantle, right?
2: Easier than Project Moho's site, but still not that
8: easy at all. <laughs> but after two months, they were like, yeah, we can't do this. This isn't working. Some of their drilling equipment broke, and
2: then a member of the crew got sick. They had to take several days off for him to get help.
8: You know, their goal was about, you know, 4,000 feet, and they only made it to 2,000 feet in change.
0: So they made, like, a little dent in the earth.
8: They got a chunk of rock, of gabbro, from the bottom of the hole, so they did get some samples, but the thing is that it's the same kind of samples that they've gotten before, where it's not pure mantle.
2: They plan to try again as soon as they
0: can. They want to go down to the moho, a boogie, 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 a boogie, boogie, boogie. boogie. They want to go down to the moho, a boogie, 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 boogie. Okay, so here's my question. Why do we want a chunk of the moho? It seems like a lot of effort for a cool rock.
8: The reason why we want to get a pure sample of the mantle is it should be able to tell us something about the formation of our solar system and the formation of our planet.
0: Oh, so the rock holds a secret to our history. I understand this hero's quest now.
8: Right, because
2: knowing what those rocks are made of will help scientists learn how our planet evolved, how we came to have the core, mantle, and crust, and why they work together the way they do.
0: Whoa, so that's a really huge unanswered question when you put it that way.
2: Exactly.
0: So to get back to Brody's question, you're saying drilling to the core is just a no-go.
8: The best we can hope for is the mantle. Especially, we're talking about the upper mantle, the asthenosphere. We're not even talking about some of the lower levels of the mantle. They're not even a pipe dream to us yet.
2: Brody might want to scale back his robot plans. There are lots of other places a robot can explore before it gets all the way to the core.
0: Okay, well, so what about Liam? Can he find what he's looking for?
2: I have much better news for Liam. Liam.
8: How far do you have to dig for lava? Depends on where you are. If you're in Hawaii, not very far at all. You can walk along the surface right next to the lava.
0: You don't want to get too close though, it's very hot.
2: Lava is molten or liquid rock that can reach up to 1200 degrees Celsius or over
8: 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. So by definition, you'll never have to dig far for lava because it's supposed to be on the surface.
2: Hard to handle, but easy
8: to access.
0: But what if you want to dig until you get to liquid rock?
8: (laughs) You can go for magma. Magma is molten rock that is still beneath the surface.
2: You'll find magma underneath volcanoes in what are called magma chambers. And if we ever get to the mantle, we might find it there
0: too. So why can't we just study magma?
2: That would be so much easier, right? But... Any magma that makes the journey to the crust has lost the
8: secrets of the mantle along the way. The crust is constantly being contaminated by weathering and erosion and UV rays bombarding and asteroids and comets slamming into the planet. But that mantle should be pure. Just think about rock that's been completely
2: untouched since the Earth came into existence.
0: Wow, I never thought about it that way. So it seems like we've barely scratched the surface.
8: I love geology. And there's so much still left to explore. Geology feels static in the way that biology, physics, and chemistry doesn't. Or with astronomy, there's always something new to discover. Um, Like we figured out this planet, but we haven't figured out this planet yet.
2: Thanks to Tashana Taylor, geology lecturer at the University of Miami. Also thanks to Brody Shaper, Liam Krauss, and their families for their excellent questions.
0: Sarah Lentz is our associate producer.
2: I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I produce
0: the show. I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I make the music. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more stories of science discovery. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. On today's episode A Year on Mars. The good and the bad of leaving home for life on the red planet.
2: Hazel sent us some ideas about what they would pack for a year on Mars.
0: I would take my mom
3: um, because she's a good knitter and she could knit me a blanket and or a hat. I would break the seeds. We could plant food. I would bring my sister because because she plays with me and if Nobody's there to play with me. You'd probably get bored and just go home. And I would also love to bring my house, because why would you want to live in this, like, rover space tech thing? I would love to just live in my house there.
2: Man, thinking about packing for a week-long trip is hard enough. I have no idea what I would take for a year on Mars.
0: Definitely at least seven pairs of underpants. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And probably lots of those fig bars you can get at Costco. I love those.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It will be a long, long time before there's a Costco on Mars. But (laughs) despite the lack of Costco, which we need for survival, NASA plans to send the first human crew to live on the planet in 2030. Right now, scientists are hard at work figuring out how to prepare for a trip. And Shayna Gifford is one of them.
5: Basically, all you needed were a few changes of clothes, some shoes, a lot of shoes, and, you know, a few personal toiletries. But that's about it. I mean, Mars comes equipped with everything else you need.
2: Shayna is a physician and a journalist, and she spent a year in a Mars simulation.
0: What does that mean?
2: She pretended to live on Mars for a full year with five other people. And every day, they dealt with the challenges of living on Mars. Isolation, limited food supplies, spacesuits, and
5: some things you wouldn't expect. Even though you're in space, you can't see space in the dome. So ironically, the only way to see stars in space is to project them on the ceiling.
2: If you're planning on spending a year on Mars, expect to spend a lot of time inside.
0: I'm guessing that's because going outside takes a lot of effort and the air might turn you into a toxic mutant.
2: Not the mutant part, but yeah. There's not enough oxygen to breathe, the planet's full of radiation, and the weather is extreme to say the least. So taking a
5: stroll is hard to do, even if you're just pretending. Well, when you go to put in a spacesuit, you have to figure out how to negotiate this thing with really big pants and really big shoulders and a really big helmet. Usually you'd step into it first and pull it up to your waist and get your waist strapped in and then you would pull it up over your shoulders, down over your head, and then turn the fans on to make sure they were working because you need to have air circulating in your space so you'll actually suffocate. So you turn your fans on they have, and then you check your radio and then you seal yourself in. And then you stand in the airlock for five minutes while the dome atmosphere is sucked out and the Martian atmosphere is pushed in. And then once those five minutes have passed, you can go outside and do your work.
0: So that sounds really uncomfortable, like worse than the summers in Texas, I mean, except the really bad ones. Remind me, why do we want to live on Mars again? Despite
2: how intense it is, scientists believe that for humans, Mars is the best place to try to live off Earth.
0: But what about the moon? I mean, we've gotten there, and uh, it seems like a nice place. They have some good cafes, a few shops. A flag. A flag. (laughs) Mars is so much further
5: away. The moon is close, but it has a lot of issues. Not a lot of good radiation shielding. Not a lot of gravity. Only one-sixth gravity. So things bounce really high, which is fun, but may not be a great place for us to live long-term.
0: Uh, Being able to jump around really high actually sounds like it'd be great. (laughs)
2: Yeah. The lack of gravity is great for bouncing, but it's bad for
5: our bones and muscles. Mars has more gravity than the moon because it's bigger. Mars, on the other hand, has as much land as all of the whole Earth. If you pile all the continents together, Mars has that much land. It also has a tilt just like we do. So it has seasons. It has a day almost as long as ours. And it's also a really neat landscape. It has big caves that would be good to build in. We could build whole cities down there.
0: So Mars is like kind of a fixer upper.
5: Exactly. And as
2: far as the Milky Way goes, it's one of the better options to invest in real estate these
0: days. just needs a little paint and maybe a way to shield from the deadly radiation and the crazy weather.
2: I mean, you're going to have issues no matter where you buy these days.
0: (laughs) Realistically, we won't be colonizing Mars for a long, long time. So where do you go to pretend you're on Mars?
2: Sim Mars, as they call it... Is
5: on the largest volcano in the world.
0: You know, you're talking about Mauna Loa in Hawaii?
5: Exactly. Mars is a volcanic environment, and some Mars looks an awful lot like actual Mars.
0: So that was enough to convince them that they were on real Mars?
2: It was actually pretty convincing. They were isolated on this volcano that's covered in red and black jagged volcanic rock, and every time they went outside, they had to wear that heavy spacesuit. Any communication with people outside had a 20-minute delay on it,
5: just like it would be on Mars.
0: Still, they must have realized they were still on Earth.
5: So we are not on Mars, obviously. Um, The sky is blue. The sky is not blue on Mars. There are clouds. There is rain. There is too much gravity. There are many indicators that you are not on Mars. They're in-between worlds. So you're not on Mars, but you're not on Earth either. You're in Sim.
0: So all the living conditions were designed to match a real future Mars mission.
2: The team was mostly confined to their solar-powered dome. They were even tested with real Mars emergencies and possible Mars
5: problems. Imagine waking up early and the first thing you wonder is, do we have any power? So you have to check the power systems. If you don't have very much power, then you can't turn the lights on. You can't make yourself any food or any hot water.
0: That sounds really hard.
5: You basically become a scientist farmer on a good day. And then on a bad day, you're a plumber, electrician, sewage repair person. It's not glamorous a lot of the time.
0: Clearly living on Mars is a lot of work, but what do you get to do for fun?
5: Crew members read,
2: they write, they play games, but they also get to explore Mars. Oh,
0: well that's pretty cool. Do you bring a soccer ball?
5: Sometimes we'd be going outside to clean the windows. Sometimes we'd be going outside to collect rocks for an experiment or to take measurements. Sometimes we'd be going outside to play, to go on long walks or explore caves. Sometimes at night I would often go outside to take photographs.
0: Well, that sounds cool.
5: Everything Shana
2: and the other astronauts did on simulated Mars was monitored with cameras and body movement trackers.
0: So that they could prepare their reality show, The Real World, Mars.
2: (laughs) I know, I can't believe MTV hasn't done this yet. (laughs) No, back on Earth, other NASA scientists were studying how the group was dealing with the stress of living and working together in such a small place.
0: They were trying to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start being real.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I know. Sheena did describe it as kind of a reality show, but only NASA and researchers from the University of Hawaii were watching them.
0: So either way, it seems like they're a little bit more lab rat than they are scientists.
5: They are data. So that's what an astronaut is. They exercise when they're told to, they eat when they're told to, they sleep when they're told to, they do the experiments they're told to do. They are the science. That's what you are when you're an astronaut. You are science.
2: NASA has now done four Mars simulations and they plan on doing many more.
5: Each time they have a different team and they're getting new and different data. They're trying to establish a pattern of human behavior. Of course, here's the interesting thing, no two crews are alike. The reason they have to keep iterating the experiment or doing it over and over is because they're looking for a pattern that sustains even when the crews change.
0: So what kind of pattern?
5: A pattern to human psychology.
2: Everyone gets sad or mad or whatever at some point, but no two people feel the same way. Shana said that is why people, and not planets, are the biggest X-factor in space travel.
0: I never really thought about an astronaut getting sad or mad. I just think of them as being like extremely well put together.
2: <laughs> well, more than anything, they're humans. They're facing big challenges, stressful times, and they're with a small group of people in an enclosed space for a really long time. And that's the whole point of why NASA runs these
5: experiments. It's not just fun to play pretend.
0: Though that's surely part of it.
5: They were looking at how well the group sticks together, works together and gets along in that one-year time when they only have each other.
0: So it's like a never-ending car trip. At some point, everyone will start to annoy you and put their feet on your side. (laughs) (laughs) Captain! (laughs) Jenkins, put her feet on my side of the spaceship again!
2: Tell her to stop touching me.
0: (laughs) Do I have to turn this ship around? We're halfway to Mars. It'll take us a year to get back. I
2: know. On a road trip, on a regular road trip, you can pull over and get ice cream to calm everyone down. But in space, you have to keep working together as a strong team. And there's a limited amount of ice cream.
5: People who don't get along don't accomplish much together. They don't do school projects well together. They don't play on baseball teams well together. They don't sit down and have dinner very well together. So it's important that people get along in all circumstances. But in space, there's no one else to help you. You can't just walk out and say, you know what? I'm tired of being here. I don't want to talk to you anymore. We're done. There's nowhere else to go, and there's nowhere for them to go.
0: So the more we talk about this, the more difficult life on Mars, I mean simulated Mars, sounds. So why did Shayna sign up for this?
5: Shayna
2: says that she was as excited to go to Sim Mars as other people are to go to
5: Disneyland. Ever since I was a kid, ever since I can remember, I've loved space and I thought that space was amazing. I was pursuing the dream of a lifetime. So that's not giving anything up, quite the opposite. This is about your future and your ability to go do whatever you want, to live in space, to visit space, to go and come back or go and stay.
2: Marshall, if we were to go live on Mars together, how do you think we'll do?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not well, obviously. (laughs) it's hard enough for us to just, like, keep the dishes clean.
3: <laughs> yes.
2: Thanks to Dr. Sheena Gifford.
0: Thanks also to Caleb and Hazel. Sarah Lent is our associate producer, and she wrote this show. I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I made all the music. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I produce this show. Thanks for listening, and tune in next time for more stories of science discovery. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery.
2: Today we're sharing an incredible story of a breakthrough discovery that changed the way we see the universe.
0: The Kuiper Belt is the distant field of small, icy objects beyond Neptune.
2: It's studied by astronomers all over the world, but it wasn't until recently that we even knew it existed. We're going to get the story from the woman who discovered it. What do you think it's like to make a big scientific breakthrough, a discovery that changes the way we understand the world and the universe?
0: Does the breakthrough happen all of a sudden, like a clap of lightning? Or is it a long, slow process? And what happens afterwards? Do you just, like, go to lunch? (laughs) Think
2: about it, because you're about to hear the story of two astronomers who made a breakthrough that changed our picture of the solar system. And the story doesn't go quite like he might expect. I remember
9: distinctly Dave saying, Jane, if we find this thing, we'll never have to work again. And he is so wrong. (laughs) Dave's not wrong very often, but that's a really, really wrong prediction.
2: (laughs) That's astronomer Jane Liu. In 1992, she and fellow astronomer Dave Jewett discovered the Kuiper Belt, a huge area of small, icy objects beyond Neptune. Today, it's seen as kind of the final frontier of our solar system.
0: So how did they discover it?
2: Well, the story starts back when Jane was a young scientist, just starting out in astronomy. And it was the early days of graduate school. I, I remember having to find a project to do. Jane wanted to study comets and other small objects in space. Dave Jewett, who was her professor suggested looking for them where no one had ever looked before, in the very outer reaches of the solar system. Jane was skeptical about the idea. So I I asked, if
9: these things might exist, why why didn't anybody look for them? He said, well,
0: because they're faint.
9: They, They
2: would be faint if they existed at all.
0: What did he mean they'd be faint if they existed at all?
2: Well, he was asking Jane to look for something in far-distant space that would be really hard to see and no one thought was out there.
0: So he's basically telling her to go over to some haystack and he thinks there might be a needle in it.
2: At the time, everyone just kind of accepted the idea that besides for Pluto, the solar system beyond Neptune was just empty. But Dave explained to Jane that he didn't believe that. And he pointed out that...
9: There is no reason why the outer solar system should be completely empty. It didn't seem reasonable that there should be a sharp edge, like a big, a sharp
2: cutoff beyond which there was nothing. This was all based around a really well-established idea in astronomy that after the sun and planets formed billions of years ago, there was a lot of leftover material. Kind of like
0: planet scraps, like when you're crafting planets at home, you always have some extra.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Those scraps are the small bodies Jane was interested in, comets and asteroids. We know that there are lots and lots of them in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Dave's idea was that there should be more scrap material beyond the farthest out planets, too. And so he said, well,
9: we should should look. And I said, well, haven't other people look? And he says, no, if we don't, nobody else will, because we're the only people crazy enough to do it.
0: You know, if there's one thing that gets me on board with any project, it's being told that I'm one of the only people crazy enough to do it.
2: <laughs> I know. Jane went along with that. To her, it ended up being a relatively simple and interesting question. So there were two possible
9: answers. Uh, one is, no, there is nothing. We just be on Neptune. In which case, it's still good to know. Because that provides another data point and tells you something about how the solar system formed.
2: Meaning, if there was a sharp edge to the solar system, that might change our whole idea about
9: how it formed. Or the answer could be, yes, there are things beyond Neptune, in which case we want to find them.
0: Okay, so the scene is all ready. They've got their Discovery shoes, their Discovery hats. (laughs) Hopefully they got uh, team jackets that (laughs) said it. Team outside of Neptune Discovery team.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I believe it was the slow-moving objects team.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So did they have like a big send-off, like kind of a launch party where they had some cake, maybe a croissant?
9: Not really. then So when we started at work, Everybody was skeptical, not just
2: most. Everybody was skeptical. Jane and Dave needed to use a big, powerful telescope if they had any hope of detecting these small, faint objects so far away. It's really big. You don't hold it up to your eye. There's very few of these telescopes, and astronomers are always asking for time to use them. We would ask for telescope time to do our search. They were routinely denied.
0: Right, so there's not just, like, a sign-up sheet, like, like like for the bounce house. Be <laughs> like, "We got the bounce house this weekend, guys."
2: <laughs> no, there's a whole long complicated application process. Getting your request for telescope time denied is like astronomy's way of saying, "We don't think what you're doing is really that important."
0: <laughs> it's pretty cold.
2: But that didn't stop Jane and Dave. They were going to make it happen no matter what. If they didn't give us time for
9: these observations. We just, we would steal from ourselves. We would have telescope time to do other things. And and then we would just use them for for this project.
0: So would they constantly be looking over their shoulders, being like, don't tell the boss, but we're going to look for small, slow moving objects beyond Neptune.
2: They would tell people in charge of the telescope
0: that they were studying
2: something that was more popular to study. Then when no one was looking, they'll point the telescope out beyond Neptune. (laughs)
0: Astronomical deception. Smooth. (laughs) So did they find anything?
2: No, not for many years, which really didn't help their case with other astronomers. Every
9: so often they would say, you're just wasting your time. You've been doing this for a long time and you haven't found anything. There's nothing there.
0: Why didn't they give up? Like, I don't know, after you've been looking for something like some kind of body beyond Neptune, I'd give it like a month.
2: There was one thing on their side new technology. In astronomy, every so often there's a significant jump in the improvement of the detectors. The detectors are the part of the telescopes that control how much you can see into space and how well you can see what's there. The technology keeps improving. It's kind of like how our cameras keep getting better and better on our phones. You know, it
9: just worked out that every time we were getting discouraged the detectors got better. (laughs) And then you would think, oh, with this new detector, we're really gonna find something. And
2: so that kept us going. They kept going for five years. The real turning point came when Dave got a new job that gave him access to one of the best telescopes in the world, in Hawaii. And then
9: we have access to the telescopes on Mauna Kea, which is a, a big
2: volcano on the island of Hawaii. In 1992, they got some treasured time on the telescope. At night, when the sky was dark and clear, they settled into the small, quiet control room of the telescope. Dave and I would go to the telescope, and the two of us would just run everything together. Their plan was to trade off jobs. One person would take photos with the camera on the telescope. The other person was inspecting the pictures and trying to spot any differences.
9: The the way you find a slow moving thing or any moving thing in the solar system is that you take uh, a series of images of the same area of the sky spaced out over, say, I don't know, an hour, and then you display them on your computer.
2: They'll click through the photos back and forth and back again, looking closely to see if anything moved against the background of stars. Anything that
9: moves would show up very easily. Stars and galaxies, they don't move at all, so they just stay fixed. It, it's just like these little flip books that kids play with, you know? and you, you flip the pages really fast, and it seems like things are moving. It's just the same, exact same idea.
0: So, like, not too fancy a technique.
2: It's called blinking the images. At some point late into the night, Jane was at the camera and Dave was at the computer Looking at her photos. So Dave was blinking two images. And it's just
9: because, What? Well, what else do you do? Uh, and he saw something.
0: Okay, what did he see?
2: A tiny, faint light had moved from one image to the other. And he pointed out to me, and I said, oh, that okay, I'll, maybe,
9: you
6: know,
2: that's good, but, you know, there's only two images. Jane waited for the next image to see that there was something actually moving. And he was blinking
9: the three images, and the object he saw was still there in the third image. It was still moving in the right direction, still the same brightness, at the right speed that we were looking for.
0: So, did she believe it then?
9: By the third image, we yeah, we were pretty excited. And then we took a fourth image, and it was still there, and it was still going the right direction, still the same brightness.
2: This was the moment they'd been waiting for for five years. Jane and Dave knew they were looking at something really interesting, but they couldn't say what it was for sure yet.
9: Maybe it's a comet, maybe it's a distant comet, right? Just just coming through the solar system. So yes, you excited, but until the orbit is determined, you can't
2: jump up and down yet.
0: <laughs> so what does that mean until the orbit is determined?
2: They had to repeat their measurements the next night to confirm that, yes, the objects kept moving in the direction they predicted at the speed they predicted. There was nothing left for them to do but wait for the
9: next night. And then you keep thinking, oh, something's going to go wrong. The telescope is just (laughs) going to fall apart. The the instrument would fall apart. Something's going to be wrong. And remember, not sleeping very
2: much.
0: Oh man, imagine being on the brink of a breakthrough and so much being out of your control.
2: I know. If it was cloudy the next night, they wouldn't have been able to see anything. It was probably pretty unlikely that the telescope would suddenly break though. Um but still the next night they got lucky.
9: And we found it again. And so uh, so there was joy and <laughs> and jumping
2: up and down.
0: So what was it? What was this thing they found?
2: It was a small, icy body. They could tell its size, its orbit, and the fact that it was icy because far away things in space tend to be icy.
0: Yes, it's cold out there.
2: You could say that. The most important thing is, it was found where no one believed anything like it existed. It was given the number 1992QB1. That means it was discovered in August 1992.
0: Astronomers aren't too creative with their naming systems. So did they come down from the mountain to be greeted by a crowd of cheering astronomers? Like, I imagine all of them clapping their hands and saying, like, Atta boy!"
2: <laughs> no. A lot of
9: people say, oh, well, we don't know what this thing is. Some people said, there's only one object like it, and you found it. <laughs> and then we would say, are you crazy?
0: <laughs> so when will people believe them? They had to
2: find another object. And to do that, they had to wait for another turn on the telescope six months later. And then we found the second one. <laughs> so we were really
9: happy. <laughs> and then, yeah, after you found the second one, you know, okay, whew,
0: there are a lot of these things. <laughs> so, are there a lot of these things?
2: Yes. Astronomers now believe that there are 100,000 small icy bodies like the one Jane and Dave found in a disc-shaped area much, much bigger than the asteroid belt. It's the material left
9: over from the formation of the solar system.
0: I guess that proves their original hypothesis or idea that there's no hard edge to the solar system.
2: Yeah, it just kind of petered out. And that discovery opened a huge field of research, not just in our own solar system, but in every solar system in the universe. What it tells us is that when you make planets,
9: there's always leftover material, and that is the Kuiper Belt. So it tells us that when you go look in any other solar system, there should be Kuiper Belts around every single other planetary system. It's just leftover stuff. and. If you want to figure out what happened in the early days, that's the stuff you
0: want to study. Wow. So she's saying that there's a Kuiper Belt in every solar system, and it gives you clues about how the planets there were formed. Yeah. Man, that's like a really big deal. I kind of can't believe I've never heard about this before.
2: I know. Jane and Dave received some awards and recognition from the scientific community for their discovery but neither of them studies the Kuiper belt today. We just never wanted to do what everybody
9: else was doing.
0: What, so they searched all this time, proving themselves to be right against all odds and all the naysayers, and finally people join them and they're like, eh, cool, I'm done.
2: (laughs) Basically, because what they loved was the search and the mystery. They loved exploring what was totally unknown. Anybody who likes exploring, like you always want to, you know, find, you solve a puzzle
9: nobody has solved before, you find something nobody has seen before. I think, I I don't think we're
2: alone in that. I think everybody wants to be an explorer. Jane's love for exploring led her to a big breakthrough discovery in space, the kind that are rarely made by just two people in astronomy. But she and Dave aren't treated as special. They're still regular, working astronomers. I don't think about it
9: much. I don't go around saying, hmm, every, like, I'm Jane Lu, I discovered the Kuiper." I, I don't think about it very often. Yes, it's nice to have done something good, but but Dave was very, very wrong when he said we would never have to work again.
0: <laughs> She's uh, pretty humble for someone who changed the way we picture every solar system in the universe.
2: When it comes to breakthroughs, I feel like there's this idea that they're only made by special, rare geniuses.
0: Like Galileo or Leonardo da Vinci or Archimedes.
2: Or Stephen Hawking.
0: Sure, that guy.
2: (laughs) But Jane doesn't see herself as a genius. She's just someone who got really good at doing what she loves. The word genius is thrown
9: around a lot. And some people are, are truly, genius, but they're just so, so smart and they see things so clearly. But a lot of time, they're just people who who just think about whatever they like a lot. They think about it day and night just because they like it. And, and if you like something a lot and you think about it all the time, you're going to be good at it and you're going to find something that other people overlooked.
2: So think about it for yourself. What do you like so much that you think about it day and night? It doesn't have to be science.
0: Once you know what the thing you like is,
2: how might you get good at it?
0: What might you think of that other people haven't?
2: You don't have to have an answer right away, but you never know. It might lead to a big new idea or even a breakthrough someday. Thanks to Jane Liu, planetary astronomer with the Arctic University of Tromso in Norway. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote
0: and produced this show. I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I made all of the music. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for more stories of science discovery.